Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Train Happy Podcast with me, Tally Rye. This is the podcast that helps you have a feel-good relationship with fitness, food, and body image. And today, we have another returning guest. It's been a bit of a theme recently, but I really wanted to get Kimberly Wilson back on the podcast. Now, Kimberly was our second ever guest and one of my favorites, still a total standout. If you don't know Kimberly's work, Kimberly is a psychologist. She was on Great British Bake Off as well, but she's a psychologist, author of the book, How to Build a Healthy Brain and her new book, Unprocessed. But today we were talking all about perfectionism. What does it mean to be a perfectionist? How does perfectionism play a role in how we relate to food and exercise and just ourselves in general? And you know what? We got pretty deep. So I really think you're gonna enjoy this episode. But of course, before we get into it, it is time for Train Happy Trooper of the Week. This week's Train Happy Moment comes from Joe. Joe messaged us and said, Oh, Tally, I need to tell you about a Train Happy Moment I had this weekend. I got a ballot place in the London Hallmarks Half Marathon in October, but the, and the race is in April. I've done hardly any training. I hate running. And I'm no good at it, but I have been putting pressure on myself to get outside and run. This weekend, I decided I'm not going to run the event. I got up on Saturday morning and instead of going outside and hating it, I put on a Latin Grooves dance workout on my TV in my living room and I smiled for the whole 40 minutes of the routines. I realized why the hell am I trying to reach goals I have no interest in when I can actually do things I enjoy and still get fitter. So yeah, I think that was my first train happy moment of the year. Joe, I love this train happy moment so much. I think we have such narrow views of what fitness is and that it has to be going, you know, running in a race. And I think running is one of those ones where if running is for you, that is fantastic and wonderful. And I'm really happy for you if running is for you. But when it's not and you're really trying to force it and make it happen, it just makes the whole process more miserable. And instead, you have found something that you genuinely love to do. And I feel like dance workouts on YouTube are always a bit of me as well. So I'm really glad you found the thing that makes you feel good and that you have fun doing. Because as I always say, the best workout isn't the one that you think you should do. It's the one you enjoy. If you would love to share your train happy moment on the podcast or send myself a question or future guests a question, then please get in touch on WhatsApp. You can send us a message or a voice note. We do love a voice note to 075-999-27537. And you can find us on Instagram as well at train happy podcast. Make sure you're following us on there if you haven't already. Okay. Enough from me. Let's get into perfectionism with the brilliant, truly brilliant Kimberly Wilson. Kimberly, I'm so pleased you're back on because do you know how many people have said to me about the first time you were on, which I think we must have recorded together literally three years ago. Gosh, in like, that long it must ago? have been like January 2020. Look, the one in your old in my, place. In my old mm-hmm. flat, yeah. And that episode about brain health and how to build a healthy brain, which is the book that you've written has been so well received and people just find you just so interesting and I personally love any opportunity I ever get to talk to you to kind of hear your thought process on on everything so thank you I had to I had to have an excuse to get you in and no doubt you'll come back again as well (laughs) (laughs) um today I want to explore um perfectionism 
because I think that's so interesting. But before we get into that, it has been three years since you're on the podcast. So what have you been up to, Kimberly Wilson? Well, I suppose the first thing is uh, surviving pandemic. Yes. Um, and I think when actually, yes, it must have been three years because if I'd just written the book, so the book came out a week before we went, or two weeks before we went into lockdown. Um, and then I kind of shifted my, for the certainly for the first few months, my social media to supporting people to manage their anxiety at home. Because what I was seeing a lot of, because I was still working, but virtually, was just this kind of rise in the anxiety and people not knowing really why they felt so anxious, you know, because they didn't feel like it was as, as serious at the time, you know, in the early days of the pandemic. We were like, I don't know why I'm bothered. I'm well, I don't know. And really helping people to kind of recognize the impact and the kind of physiology of anxiety and how to manage it. So that was a, a time. Um, and then after that, the last just over a year, I've been writing my second book. And I'm in this very strange space now where it's it's been handed in. It's not out yet, but it's been handed in and edited. And now I have my weekends back. <laughs> and I'm kind of rediscovering the outside world. I can have like, <laughs> you do extracurricular activities. Honestly, I can have a hobby like, again. Exactly. I can go out to places. We, we were discussing said book. Mm. Has the title been released? Does yes, it have a name? It's called Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueled our mental health crisis. Oh, well, we're going to have you back when it's out um, because we were already discussing its contents prior to recording and it's fascinating. And everyone's going to want to hear your thoughts on that. Um, But yeah, like I said, I thought perfectionism was an interesting topic today. Mm. Um, I wonder, do you find, do you identify as a perfectionist? Would you say with your writing, your book, for example, has that been a process of like, I don't know, you could tweak and tweak and tweak forever, mm-hmm. right? Until mm-hmm. it was perfect. But is it ever perfect? Yeah. So I don't know if I would identify as a perfectionist in my private life. No. Like if you saw the state of my desk, like, you, you wouldn't <laughs> be like, look, looking at the desk of a perfectionist. That would not be the case. Um, so I'm pretty good at you know, giving myself a bit of leeway, you know, self-compassion, understanding that humans make mistakes. Even even when I put things out on my social media, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll post something and then realize that there's a typo and I could take it down, but people are forgiving. It's fine. Mm. So I think in, in that kind of realm, no, I don't think I would consider myself a perfectionist. But I think with books, I guess my feeling is there are two parts. And one is about accuracy. So I want to, I want the things, because writing a book is a big endeavor. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It's years of your life, um, if not, you know, months, years of your life. Um, And so I want to do the very best that I can. And I want it to be as valuable to the people who will part with their money to read it as, as possible. So I feel quite a big responsibility to do my very best. And there might be mistakes. And, you know, as soon as you publish a book like this one, another study will come out, which will slightly tweak the meaning of some of the things that you've already said. So there's a level of acceptance that you have to get into about it can't be perfect and things will change. But I want to know that, you know, when I press send and send the manuscript to the publisher, I've done my very best to make it as accurate and honest and helpful as possible. And then you just kind of have to leave it to the universe. I think you kind of got to hand it over um, and hope that it goes down as well as it was intended. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to think about it. And I imagine for perfectionists listening, they'll be like, oh, this sounds nice. This sounds like I haven't been completely tormenting myself and feeling like that there's a lot of my self-worth wrapped up in mm. this and all, all of that stuff. Okay, so let's get into a definition of perfectionism. Because I think it's a common trait that many people listening to this podcast may possess if they have a strange relationship with food and exercise and maybe their body image as well. So we can have two definitions in terms of psychology. We can think about adaptive perfectionism and maladaptive perfectionism. And so adaptive perfectionism might be the kind where, you know, you're striving hard and you want to do your very best and and that's fine. And it doesn't necessarily have a negative impact on the way that you feel about yourself, your ability to be kind to yourself. It doesn't lead to kind of self-punishment if it doesn't go the way you intended. And when we think about maladaptive perfectionism, And then we're thinking kind of about the opposite. It's when people are particularly cruel, harsh, unkind, punishing towards themselves, where actually they're so... 
continue to be unhappy even when they succeed and they can't even hold on to the goodness of a success or an achievement. And then you have to start questioning actually, what are you driving towards and what are you striving for? I think the difficulty is almost in the label because when you call it perfectionism, and we all understand the word perfect to be good, to have kind of positive connotations. It's good to be perfect, to work hard to be perfect. And doesn't it just mean that you're striving? And we live in a kind of socioeconomic situation where, you know, people who strive and thrive and hustle are the ones that we admire. And aren't you just then a hard worker? Aren't you just being kind of a productive member of, of society? So I think almost a label becomes aspirational and people kind of say, oh, I'm a perfectionist, as if it's something to a goal within itself. And I think the problem with that is that it very much tends to lead people to start to conceive of themselves as a unit of productivity. Like mm. I'm a perfectionist, this is my label. And therefore my value now resides in what I can produce, the quality of what I can produce, the quantity of what I can produce, and um, the consistency with which I can produce it. And I lose the other part of me, which is the human part, the feeling part, the experiencing part, um, the, the part which is in a constant state of, of becoming. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it becomes aspirational in itself. And I think we really, it's worth having a good kind of disentanglement of what it means for individuals. I think you're right. There's an association of perfectionism with like a, a work ethic. Yeah. Like no one says, oh, I'm an imperfectionist. I'm a, no. I'm a, I'm a kind of, I'm a 70% person. <laughs> I know. And a lot of people, because so many people don't want to be described as lazy. See, and this is the thing, like, are we, are we holding lazy up as the opposite of perfection? Because that's a very, very stark contrast, it isn't is. it? It's yeah. like either you're perfect, which is, as we all know, impossible. Um, and actually it doesn't even really have a meaning. Like if we stop and think about it, mm. what is the meaning of perfect? When you, if you say, oh, someone has the perfect body. You, Surely you, it's subjective. What do you mean? You mean mm. for their age, for their particular cultural milieu that they grow up in? Is it for their particular sport? Is it for, like, what do you mean by perfect? Is it, It's a kind of meaningless concept, which we just take on without really interrogating. Um, but if you hold up perfect as the opposite of lazy, then it gives you no space to stop. And I think people are kind of persecuted by the idea of lazy quite a lot. And, and that often comes up as a word that people are terrified of, of being described of as feeling in themselves, of, of being judged at. No one wants to be considered lazy. And I suppose I wonder where that comes from. Is that Capitalism? Would <laughs> <laughs> be is my it, guess. Is it <laughs> Yes. I think I think actually that's probably a, a big chunk of it. Often people um will talk about maybe a parent having called them lazy. That was my other thing, was like, is this nature or nurture? Something like that. And and I suppose those things don't necessarily have to be separate, right? So for example, if you're a parent who is just concerned that your child is gonna have a good future and is just anxious that you we live in a very competitive capitalist uh, society and that you know that it's kind of dog eat dog. So really you're, you're an anxious parent and what you want is for your child to do well. And maybe for some other parents, they look at their children as a reflection of them and an extension of them, but that's a different story. What they mean is I'm very anxious that you are happy and successful and well in the future. I want to feel that I'm doing the best for you. I want you to know that I love you and I'm invested in your success. But if they're unable to really understand and kind of conceptualize their feelings and their own anxiety like that, what they do is hand it over to the kid and say, don't be lazy. Don't make me anxious that you're not going to succeed. Don't make me worried that I'm going to die and you're going to be living under a bridge. And so it's that translation of the parent's anxiety being handed over to the kid as I need you to help reassure me that you'll be okay, that often the child will take on as, oh, well, my parents don't believe in me or I'm at risk of kind of not being up to scratch. And do you think that kind of can feel as a child as like, I've got to get straight A's and I've got to get perfect scores and nothing Absolutely. less than this is possible. Do you know what? I'd never, 
considered in that dynamic that the the what the real fear was for the parent there mm. that that like I, I want you to do these things because I want you to be a success because if you're a success then I don't have to worry I, and I think particularly if it's a kind of situation where the parent themselves hasn't had a very good experience of emotional communication or understanding they they won't necessarily know they'll they'll know that they've got a feeling of discomfort when they see their kid lying about or not doing their homework but they won't really be able to understand where what that signal is what it's telling them and so they just say what well, something about you something about what i'm seeing is uncomfortable for me so i need you to stop doing that so i can be more comfortable and actually if they had a deeper understanding of their own emotional world then maybe it'd be a different conversation and that it'd be a clearer communication and they'd put less pressure on their kids Oh, this has just given me so much clarity <laughs> on a, a couple of dynamics within my own life. <laughs> um, and I find that really interesting. Do you think there is a purely nurture element there? That we do, uh, you know, it is something that we we learn to be a perfectionist rather than we're born to be perfectionists. For sure. So I think in the same way that some children are naturally more likely to be introverted than some are more likely to be extroverted. We all are born with an innate constitution. And we understand, for example, that when it comes to things like risk of later anxiety, a child who just has, who is naturally just more laid back versus a child who is more what we might call neurotic, a bit more anxious, a bit more edgy, a little bit more um, hypervigilant. Um, just that natural constitution makes a difference to their later risk of mental health concerns. So to a degree, there might be some children who are just more conscientious, we would call it. So they fall higher on one of the personality dimensions called conscientiousness, and they're just more likely to be the kid that's finishing their homework or picking up their clothes and da 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 da. So that might be one underlying influence. But of course, the other part is what you see around you and the reinforcement that you get for certain behaviors. So if you know, you get a huge amount of praise for getting the A and you begin to associate getting an A with your parent being happy with you, with, you know, other benefits, you know, maybe you- I suppose just validation just from get school validation and, and, and pick your peers. Exactly, and, get an award and yeah, people clap for you. Yeah, got a certificate and a gold and, star. And, um, and then if you begin to integrate that into your understanding of what is valuable about you, then absolutely you've got the kind of nurture aspect of, well, it actually it's not just nice to do well, it's really important to do well. Mm. And that I need- to sustain my self-esteem by constantly achieving and ticking off certain boxes. I um I'm I don't know I'm I'm sure you probably have read Michelle Obama's book Becoming. Yes, I've read Becoming. I haven't read the new new one. No, I haven't yet? either. And I need, I do need. To, I was hoping someone would have got it for me for Christmas because I <laughs> I do love her. But found, what I found really interesting about her as a personality is an absolute box checker, and she's really kind of says it straight early on like I check the boxes and I did this and like extremely high achieving. And um, yeah, I find that really interesting about her and how that has clearly motivated her a lot for her life. And then I, I think it's really interesting. She speaks quite candidly about becoming a mother and having to take a step back with her mm. career and stuff and how difficult it's been because there's not necessarily been the possibility to check the boxes in the same way for her, herself herself and yes step, mm -hmm. and she and i feel like she's getting her time now i really feel like she has transcended but i think as you as you are that if you're that box checker that achiever always looking for the next thing i think she's kind of famously ended up as a lawyer in a law firm that she didn't actually love doing because that's just felt what she felt she had to do to kind of tick the box, do the next thing, achieve the thing. How many of us are on that similar path of going into something where we're like, I'm doing this because I think my parents would be really proud of me or this is the obvious next step in the scenario. Following that path for maybe someone else rather mm -hmm. than trusting mm -hmm. ourselves and going after what we really love to do. Yeah, I've got two thoughts. So you might have to remind me of the second one because just when you were talking about Michelle Obama, I was also thinking about perfectionism of self as self-defense. In the book, she talks about you know growing up on the south side and and you know part of the black experience being that people yes expect less of you. They don't actually think you're as capable. Not everybody, of course, but there's a lower expectation if there's one at all. There's a you know a burden of of racism and a lack of belief in your capacity. And so 
for some people, whether it's black or working class or any other marginalized group, there is a sense in which actually I I don't have a choice here. If I'm going to survive, I have to be the best. And I certainly had that conversation with with my parents. You know, you have to be twice as good in order to to make it and to be considered good enough. So and I imagine in to kind of go off on a slight tangent mm. here, but I thought that was an interesting point and I wanted to raise it before about how in your experience as a black woman, have you felt that you have had to do twice as much to achieve the same as maybe a white mm-hmm. man? Like, is there a feeling of like, <laughs> I really busted a gut here to get to where I am and some people kind of gently walk here and it feels a lot easier for them. So I, I, I certainly feel like I've worked hard and I certainly feel as though whether other people would consider this to be true or not, that I have I have fewer opportunities for strikes, right? I, I can't strike out quite as much. Yeah. And I certainly talk about this with colleagues of mine, black and Asian colleagues who who are kind of at the same level, maybe they're consultants, and they're like, I would not be able to get away with half the stuff that this white doctor or this white influencer mm-hmm. has done. I, I wouldn't be able to get away with it. My integrity would be shot to pieces very, very quickly. And so there's certainly a sense in which you have to guard your integrity. It feels certainly much more firmly than perhaps other people have to. But <laughs> your question makes me think, I think one of the things we really need to move away from is this idea, and stop me if I end up on a massive political rant, but I think more generally, we need to move away from the idea that just because someone is kind of wealthy and and kind of upper class and well sound, they sound well educated, that they're necessarily superior. Mm. Um, because I think I think that's a trap that socially we fall into. That's a real class issue across the UK, which is this, we hear a certain accent and we think, oh, that person must be very smart and very capable and and just the right person for the job. And we can look at our politics and see that that's absolutely not the case. It, Boris Johnson was a shambles, <laughs> like a consummate shambles yes. from start to finish. and But it was this kind of failing up, upwards because it was, I think, believed that someone of his kind of aristocratic, wealthy background, private school educators is somehow better suited for the job than someone who's from a working class background or has a regional accent. And I think if we can move away from those sorts of understandings of, of making those immediate associations of someone's class background to their capacity and their capability, at the very least, we'd have a much bigger selection to choose from (laughs) for certain uh, roles in office and and other parts of social life. And in that context, I think we Boris Johnson doesn't worry about perfectionism. No, he's not. (laughs) No. But what I find interesting is that people, bearing in mind race and gender and you know, socioeconomic status and all of those things, we have an idea of perfection of what a politician should be, for mm, example. Mm-hmm, mm. And Diane Abbott, who drank her, like, mixer can on, from M&S on the tube, mm-hmm. no one will ever forget that. No. And yet there have been catastrophic... I mean, I hope no one will forget, like, Liz Truss's catastrophic failures. But the standard, the standard to, is- to which those are held is so different and the idea of the projection of perfection. Yeah. But but also the responsibility is the other part, which is that the risk is, and certainly the belief is, as in the individual, is that people look at you as a representation, like a, a representative of your entire class. Mm. So whether it's of the working class or of um, of black people or of whatever it might be, when I think the risk is that, for example, with Diane Abbott, when she makes a mistake, people think, oh, black politicians, rather than Diane Abbott. Exactly. Um, and I think that's that's a feeling that's generally held by black and Asian and minority groups in general, is that actually the thing that we, if we make a mistake, it's considered proof of the general insufficiency of the entire group. Whereas my sense is that for white people, you're allowed to kind of mess up and and get things wrong. And it's kind of certainly if we use Boris as an example, it gets shrugged off and like, oh, never mind. He's, oh, it's quite he's isn't foundational he? is fine. You know, he's adequate to start with. So we'll, we'll just ignore that. So yeah, uh, I guess perfection then starts to mean and take on a different resonance from from where you are in the social strata to start with. Oh, it's fascinating. Okay, 
I want to bring it. <laughs> I want to bring it round to food mm. and exercise and our body image because, okay, we have these perfection, this kind of perfectionist view of what we want other people to be, but we also have this perfectionist view of what they look like mm-hmm. and what these, what bodies look like and and what beauty is, and so many of us internalize that and also project it onto other people, um, and I think a real common denominator with a lot of people who may have struggled with eating disorders or a strained relationship with exercise and things is often this idea of perfection. And Mm. I know you work with people in this space as well. And I'd just be really curious to hear your professional take. And I I guess I will speak from my personal perspective on this. I'm not necessarily saying this is how all therapists approach this idea. But I suppose in my experience, I think about perfection as a synonym for control. And I think what happens for a lot of people is that they have an experience, they have an experience in their life where they have felt that they have had limited control or agency over their own life. So maybe they had a very intrusive parent who, you know, told them what they should be doing and what kind of friends they should have and what they should be wearing, what, you know, or maybe they, you know, older than that, maybe they had an experience of a coercive controlling relationship where they felt that they had had their agency taken away from them. Something, maybe just the the kind of, you grow up in a faith-based community and there are certain expectations that are put upon you that you don't feel you have the power to refuse or, or go against. So my sense is that people come if you don't already have this kind of constitutional setup, they come to perfectionism as a as a response, maybe a retaliation, maybe as an attempt to regain self-esteem, maybe as a kind of way to say, that's never going to happen to me again. And so they, they seek out, try to attempt to be perfect as a proxy, and I think this is unconscious, as a proxy for control. So, and with the thing of perfectionism, you say, okay, that is my goal. That is a thing that I'm going to do. And I will control every single one of those steps until I get there. So if it's someone who wants to do a, a bikini competition, they will say, well, that is my my target weight or whatever it is. And I will control my diet to the last gram. I will track my sleep. I will do these specific workouts, even if I feel sick and I hate being there, you know, I will, I will do this in, in order to reach that goal. And I, I suspect that for a lot of people, actually, it's more about, it's less about the goal and it's more about the attempt to have control and agency to practice it, to, to kind of tell themselves that this is something that I can do, which is where they get stuck. Because then of course, what we often see is that you reach the goal and somehow that's not quite satisfying enough. And that's when you have to start questioning, well, is it really about the goal or is it something else that you're trying to attain through these behaviors and through these through these thinking behaviors as well? So broad strokes, my I guess my thinking is, okay, what what for you felt out of control? Where in your life did you feel like you had no choice, no voice, your mind was undermined, your capacity, your ability, people didn't take you seriously, they didn't think you were capable. Tell me about that. And, and then I can tell you why you feel the need to have such tight control over every aspect of your life. If I can speak personally, from my own experience, my kind of relationship with food and exercise especially became particularly strange at drama school um, and it's an extremely subjective world and I I mean throw in the mix the death of my dad like a couple of years before yeah in the environment where you want to do this pursue this job you want to have this career and yet you can't control how people receive your work mm-hmm yeah. And so you can't control whether you're the right fit for no. the job or what's in the mind of the person that yeah. you're auditioning for. Totally. Or... So I was like, okay, well, I also can't control the talent of everyone around me because it's really competitive. So I know what I can focus on. Okay. And I always said this, I will I will never be the best dancer in the room. I would never that was a place I particularly lacked talent. 
but I will, I can be the fittest one here and mm -hmm. I can be the strongest one here. And okay, so people might have better technique than me, but I can sustain this longer. So I just mm -hmm, was trying to mm -hmm. find an edge. Mm -hmm. And what kind of started out as like, I wanna be the healthiest performer I can be. So I have the energy to sustain this job. Very, very quickly turned into, I'm waking up super early and measuring mm -hmm. out everything I eat. And literally every morsel of food that enters my mouth has been probably weighed, measured and tracked. And, you know, I have to do these workouts. And, and it all suddenly became a very necessary and essential to, mm. to me. And I look back now, I was 22, 23 really. And I look back as someone who was desperately just looking to control that mm -hmm. environment. And if I could find a perfectionism with something mm -hmm. and I could control that and be good at that, because I got a lot of validation for being of course you the did. fit one. Of course like, wow, you did. Tally, you're so strong. You can, and I'm like, great, because I haven't had any positive feedback in other areas. So if I can get it here, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. Um, and so it's, it's very hard. And I think especially, I imagine those who may identify more with orthorexia and may identify with um, the validation you get when you're the fit one, when you're the healthy sure. one. And I think you want to strive for that, you know? And yeah, for me, you know, there's there's so much overlap between the perfectionism, the control and the validation. Mm. That uh, was a nice perfect storm for me. The <laughs> <laughs> little yeah, Venn like, diagram. Yeah, it was like fantastic. <laughs> and I think this, this strangely does link with capitalism. Um, the sense of belonging, right? So if you are the fit one, if you're, you know, here is your label. This is how we know you. And this is where you belong in this group or in this uh, organization, whatever it might be. And I think we increasingly live quite isolated, very competitive, atomized lives where we don't feel like we really belong, particularly if you're living in you know, a competitive place like London. Um, everyone is kind of your competition even your friends in this kind of weird way. Um, you know, you don't have very much time to kind of try and make the very best of what you can do and whether it's to make your money or to make uh, a certain position. And so the idea that, again, there's something in your control in that context that gives you a place to be or an expertise almost, you know, you become the one people turn to, you become the one that can be like, actually, um, that's a great source of magnesium. Like you become that person. Suddenly you've you've got a sense, you know, it feeds into your self-esteem. Like, I know who I am. I know where I belong. I know what people expect of me. I have an identity. I have here. an identity. And and actually that can become very, very difficult. Once you're in it, let's say you are the fit one, you're the healthy one. It's the relinquishing of that identity becomes incredibly difficult. If I'm not that person who all my friends know me to be and who all my followers I was literally about to say <laughs> and all of social media knows me to be as well then who am I and am I allowed to change that's the thing about social media which I think is such a trap is that we we're constantly changing and evolving you know right now you know both you and I are aging <laughs> at this very moment on a molecular genetic level whatever we're constantly changing and in the past, that would happen and people would see you change and it's fine. But with social media, you have this kind of concrete paper trail of who you used to be. Thank you very much. And that's, I liked you when you were that person. And I related to you when you were that, I projected things onto you and I identified with you when you were that person. So if you change, that's a problem for me. So I'm just going to keep reminding you <laughs> of how you're not allowed to change. And I think that's particularly during adolescence, which is a huge process of shift in your understanding of the world, your place in your social group, your identity, who you want to be. I think it becomes a huge trap to anyone who starts to think, do you know what? I'm not really sure this works for me anymore. I'm not sure I feel healthy. I'm not sure I feel happy anymore. I'm not sure I even really like these people. I don't think they really care about me. You know, whatever it might be, it becomes much more difficult to then step away from that and to make changes. 
And I think people will relate to that on maybe a similar story to mine. Maybe they are known as someone who lost a significant amount of weight through a weight loss program. Um, and if you think about something like Weight Watchers, you know, they've got magazines, you're on the front cover magazine, you are the poster child for, you know, the transformation and the success. Mm -hmm. And when we inevitably know in that example, when some people know like whether that is that validation and success has come through people you know or a magazine or social media or whatever. And we know that there's probably an inevitable chance that you're going to regain that weight. How do you deal with that loss of identity? You know? Yeah. yeah. And especially because, well, the thing is, <laughs> the real answer is to never really make it your identity to start with. Yes. <laughs> but that's not really how we're socialized. Um, we are, you know, even starting in childhood, parents will do that between, you know, and siblings will do that to each other. She's the smart one. She's the outgoing one. So-and-so is, you know, so it starts very, very early on. And and the, again, the trap with that is that you think, well, if I'm the smart one, am I allowed to also be the sporty one? Or is this just where I have to stay? So I think we start being socialized into identifying with labels and to be pinning those labels onto ourselves and then acting in accordance with those labels. Because one of the things you need to understand about human psychology is that we, your brain is constantly making predictions. Your brain is a prediction making machine. So it's your brain isn't responding moment to moment to what's happening in the world. It's making a prediction about what's about to happen and then kind of cross-checking with that, with the information that comes in. So, and that's essentially just, it's much more efficient, right? Because if I was constantly responding to everything that was happening when I was walking down the street, I'd be exhausted by the time I got home. So prediction helps your brain, which is always burning a lot of energy to just conserve more energy. But what that means is that we also behave in accordance with the predictions we make about ourselves. So if I have given myself or been given a certain label about the kind of person I am, or you're not the kind of person who goes to the ballet, or you're not the kind of person who da 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 da, then I will start to behave in accordance with those expectations and those predictions that my brain is making. And so I start to conceive of myself as someone who doesn't do certain things and isn't allowed to do certain things. And so I think we have to be much more careful, all of us, you know, because this is, it's very, very common and it's very, very easy. And, and your, you know, almost your brain is kind of um, biased towards behaving like this. It's very easy to label other people and start to think of them as a certain type and expe expecting certain things of them. We just need to hold those things quite loosely, not think of them as ironclad definitions. Oh, you know, oh, I was so surprised when I saw you at the thing. Well, you know, that's that was your expectation. That was nothing to do with me. Um, so that we can allow people more space to grow and to change and to, to be happy for them in, in that process. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mum's The Word is a brand new parenting podcast hosted by me, Ashley James. Pregnancy, piles, and all the other problems that come with parenting, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Join me each week on my journey through motherhood as we celebrate the amazing highs as well as the lows. As it's my first time, we'll have celebrities, experts, and hopefully you guys too who will help me figure out what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. Find us wherever you got this podcast. I've had this conversation several times this week with clients of mine who have made the assumptions about themselves like I'm not a, I'm not 
like an active person. The number of people who say person. I'm not the kind of person who does exercise after having like terrible experiences of sports at school. Oh, I'm just not that kind of person. Sorry. Yeah. No. No. Well, <laughs> exactly this. I've literally had this conversation and I think we do kind of create these self-fulfilling prophecies for ourselves where we go... And I say this as someone who is like, I'm not a runner. And I, I say this, you know, I have to call myself out here. I regularly say like, I'm just not a runner. I'm not built for running. And, you know, actually, I've just moved out of London. I live in a really nice woody wooded space. I'm, I'm waiting for it to dry out a bit. Like, I don't want to get kicked in mud. like at the moment. It is. <laughs> but... I was thinking in the spring, summer, do you know what? I actually think it'd be really nice just to do like some short kind of run walking around here. And I actually think that'd be really lovely. And I don't plan on necessarily being someone that enters like races or anything like that. But just on a casual level, I think I'd really like to do that because I just think it's so lovely around here and the views and blah, blah, blah. But I've had to, you know, allow myself to do that because otherwise I'm, I'm Tally. I don't run, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not that person. And I think it's, it can be, and I know this is a very kind of self-helpy term, but it can be a limiting belief mm-hmm. in the sense of it It kind of just stops you even trying. And I think, you know, there's so many, you know, I know people in my life who are like, you know, that's just, that's for other people. That's not for me, mm-hmm. especially around exercise. Mm-hmm. And I think especially in the way we perceive fitness and how it ha- it's so often shown, and I, I, I do think it's changing, but the kind of traditional view of this sort of thin white woman you know wealthy white woman in a class you know whatever um that we think well there's no space for me here which is understandable because (laughs) sometimes you don't see yourself you don't feel like I could do that but um as that is changing as we are having more representation as I think things are kind of slowly kind of becoming more diverse and inclusive maybe we do need to challenge those thoughts about ourselves and maybe we do need to go like oh, actually maybe I could try and see if I like it see if I want to do the stuff yeah. and just see whether I'm correct <laughs> <laughs> exactly right because it, it may be that you're not a runner but you'll the point is knowing that from experience rather than a kind of preconceived notion mm-hmm. of who you are and, and who you're allowed to be mm-hmm. so yes I think if we can allow ourselves to hold these labels much more loosely then we we give ourselves a freedom to just try things yeah just try it yeah let's see if you're the kind of person who goes to the opera who knows maybe you are maybe it's your thing but you don't know until you give yourself the permission to break out of the box and and try something new and i think that can also be said for people who may feel like oh i'm not the kind of person who can just sit around and have a quiet day <laughs> just try it <laughs> i can do that very easily <laughs> it's when you're talking earlier about i was like hmm people thinking of you as lazy hmm um you know i i'm you know i can relax i am not shy of putting my feet up and you know i think other people really struggle to do that and they think like i can't do that i can't be still i can't do that and i think there's a million reasons behind that and I'm very fa- I'm very fascinated as to why but I do think that there's a part of it where that's once again a sort of belief you have about yourself and what if you tried what if you challenged that about yourself you know it's often a belief about the kinds of people yeah who you perceive do that and you know in our in our social discourse we have a very derogatory attitude to people who we conceive of as as lazy and not hard working enough whether it's people with a certain body type or whether it's people who are benefits you know this idea of shirking your responsibilities not trying hard enough not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is a real condemnation of what is constituted as lazy and i think partly that's a defense because if we're all actually feeling hugely anxious about our place in society and our ability and our our worth, then it's always helpful to have someone else to look down upon and to say, at least I'm not that, at least I'm not that kind of person. And so I think what happens, this terror of lazy is often around, when I've seen it, it's been in people who feel on some fundamental level inadequate, or not quite good enough anyway. 
And and again, so they've they've wrapped up or they've kind of buffered themselves against that feeling by constantly proving the world wrong. Actually, they're trying to prove themselves wrong, but proving the world wrong. Look, I did this and I did this. So I am worthy. Honestly, I am. Listen to me. Like you can see how valid I, and, and valuable I am. Um, but it's never quite convincing. You know, the, because they haven't dealt with the core or the root of where that feeling comes from, it constantly plagues them. It's like someone following behind them and tapping them on the shoulder and going, you're actually worthless. Like somebody else could have achieved that much better than you could. And so it's in those quiet moments when they could be resting and when they're sitting down or calm and they're not distracted by something else, they're not trying to achieve the next thing that they hear that voice. And it's actually... The, the busyness is about trying to kind of shut that voice out and save themselves from experiencing the discomfort of these feelings of inadequacy. And that busyness can be busy with work, can be cleaning your house, can be going to the gym, doing excessive amounts of exercise. Doom scrolling is another one. Doom scroll. Well, we all have a passive TikTok scroll, Kimberly, don't we? <laughs> don't we? <laughs> um, you know, we we had a previous episode on here about drinking and all that kind of stuff. And just how, many, how much of us are just trying to do stuff to avoid feeling the feels because, <laughs> oh, it's uncomfortable, isn't it's it? It's really uncomfortable and we don't get any basic training in it. We're really... No, we really, really don't. bad at it. We really don't. <laughs> we really don't. I know we spoke about adaptive and maladaptive perfectionism. Do we feel like there is a place where it can be helpful, where it, it it's not only sort of negative? Mm-hmm. Like, are there places where it can be helpful to be that way? Um, I suppose I would, I personally, and it's just a complete personal preference, probably wouldn't use the word perfectionism, partly because I think it's it's so clouded with, with other connotations um but also because i don't believe in perfection <laughs> like it's it's simply not possible um and so i i think perfectionism is a lie <laughs> so i but i think I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with trying or striving or attempting and i think it, more than that it's it's kind of part of human nature to want to try to achieve something you know we think <laughs> think about things like um you know, in the Olympics and the pole vault, as a sport, it just confuses me. Like, when do you learn that you can hurl yourself over Oh, I over often think that about things like, how stick. did you get to the point where you were like, I'm really good at pole vault? <laughs> and so it's kind of like, people want to see whether they can do it and they, they can be the person to throw themselves off the top of a stick and, you know, and it's, it's, it's just a human thing. We, we like to challenge ourselves. We like to see where our edges are. We like to see what we're capable of. We like to push the boundaries. You know, some of the ideas about our evolution as a species is simply is that we kind of looked over the horizon and thought, what's over there? <laughs> Let me go see if I can see what's over there. You know, that we, we have this kind of curiosity and drive and push. So I don't, and I never want to kind of, um, problematize that mm. or you know make it a pathology i don't think that's a problem i think the 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 problem and the the harm of it is when it's a compensatory mechanism for a deeper problem because the point is is that if if it is a compensation and you're not able to actually enjoy the fruits of your labors then you will end up hurting yourself in some way you know, in, in the realm of exercise, you will end up overtraining, underfueling, harming your fertility. You will end up getting stress factor, you know, whatever. You will end up hurting yourself if you can't understand that the perfection that you see in your mind isn't necessarily a physical reality or where you are right now. And so I think it's really about that ability to interrogate and question and be quite honest about why am I, why am I so hard on myself? what would it be like? How would I feel if I wasn't? How would I feel about myself if I wasn't pushing so hard? If I wasn't busy all the time, what would I be thinking? That's often a question I ask my patients and clients. So if you weren't constantly in motion, what what would it be like? And I've had people say, that sounds horrifying. Like I've said, you know, do you want to just um, not be on your phone? And I'd like you to just be. sit quietly for five minutes. And they'd look at me like, what are you talking about? 
that sounds disgusting. And, <laughs> you know, that we are so far away from being able to have just a relaxed relationship with ourselves. Um, and, and, and the world offers, offers us so many distractions, so many beautiful distractions. Think here's something you might like. I don't, but okay, thanks. Here's somebody else who's similar to you who's doing something, you know, there's always something else to be doing that you have to make an active decision to stop and just be with yourself. But if the person that you end up sitting with is someone that you're unfamiliar with or you don't like very much, then there's not very much incentive to do that. So I think really it's about understanding, it's the motivation, it's the drive and the, and the lengths you go to, the harm or risk that you put yourself through in, or, in order to achieve them and your capacity to enjoy the outcome, which will tell us whether this is adaptive or maladaptive for you. I completely don't like being with my thoughts. I know that about myself. <laughs> I, I, I'm at least self-aware about it. Um, but I know that, and I was going to ask, I feel like one of the mo times that I feel like everyone has in common to um, where they are like, right, finally I have to actually just be in my head a bit, is when we put our head on our pillow at night. Mm -hmm. And that's when all the thinking happens. Yeah. Um, and so do you think that if you were able to kind of allow yourself to give yourself that space in the day, it might be a little bit quieter when you hit the pillow? pillow For pillow? sure. So we know that the, the leading causes of well, in the leading treatments in the UK and the US, you know, like the kind of nice recommended treatments for insomnia aren't sleeping pills. It's not all, you know, there's something chemically going on in your body that's stopping you from sleeping. So we'll just rebalance you with this thing or other. It's, it's something called CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, because we understand that the thing that is keeping you awake is your thoughts. You know, mm -hmm. that's what's happening. Something about the way you are thinking and or feeling is keeping you awake at night. It's either just keeping your brain too alert so that you have to, you can't kind of switch off or it's creating physiological anxiety. It's turning on your stress hormones, which are alertness, awakeness hormones. And it's preventing you from the, the physiological shifts that allow you to get off to sleep. Um, I certainly, I often think that A, people don't really know how stressed they are. They don't know that they're working at this level, like basically just vibrating around the world all the time. So they don't realize that their, their brains and bodies aren't being able to switch off adequately in order to sleep properly, but also that they spend a lot of their day suppressing their anxieties, suppressing their worries, sometimes suppressing their rage, and that it starts to just bubble up and emerge when they, you know, your 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 psyche isn't just going to stay quiet because you tell it to. <laughs> like it will find a way to be heard. And if that's when you're putting your head on your pillow or in your dreams, so be it. Like it wants to be listened to and it will keep ringing the alarm until such a time as you as you tune in. So the solution with that is therapy and, uh, <laughs> um, and journaling, journaling and <laughs> just empty your brain as much as you can. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. So going forward from this episode, I think mm. we've discussed so many interesting things and like perfection is the catalyst for the conversation, but I feel like it's taken us in really great directions. I feel like people are listening to this and they're mm. feeling like, okay, I identify with this. This is me. I, uh, what do I do? <laughs> I mean, what can people do to take a step back, really think and reflect on how they may, if they identify as a perfectionist, why do they do that? And what they can do to go forward to just help put them at a bit more ease and just kind of bring a bit more um, kindness and compassion and self-compassion into their lives. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of half smiling because I've got this image in my head of someone now saying, well, I'm going to stop being a perfectionist perfectly. perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read all the books there are on perfection and I'm going to listen to this podcast five times and I will take a test on it and get 10 out of 10. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I suppose I think the first part is is a little bit of self-reflection and to do that from a point of compassion that, you know, there's to not, I know we've spoken about adaptive and maladaptive, but it, what I'm not saying is that you're bad for being a perfectionist, you know, that it's a mistake a that you've made. Exactly. Thing. Not at all. It, it's a thing. And the thing is, is it a thing that's helping you or harming you? That's the issue. That's my only concern with it. Is it helping you or is it harming you? Um, and so that I think would be the first set of questions for that, for that person. Um, 
what are my beliefs about perfectionism? Do I think it's something to aspire to? Do I think it's something that's really impressive? Do I look up to other people who consider themselves to be perfectionists? How do I feel when I'm around perfectionists? Were my parents perfectionists? You know, did they value perfection? You know, what are my beliefs about perfection and where did they come from? Then I would say the next question in your little journal weekend <laughs> would be, what are the costs of perfection for me? You know, what is it doing to me? Does it take me away from myself, from my uh, my ability to relax? Does it keep me away from other things that would be beneficial for me, like being with friends and, and all of that sort of stuff? So what are the costs? What are the benefits? You know, it, what is it giving me? And then you might want to ask, is there another way that I could achieve that? You know, if it's giving me a sense of self-esteem, is there another way that I could achieve that? So I would start there, but then I would say, and I, I and I, I do couch this in understanding that it's very very hard to get access to a mental health professional at the moment, and I I know that. So I'm and I'm you know I feel very sorry about that. Um, but I suppose this kind of self reflection is very hard to do by yourself. And I think the risk with a perfectionist type person is that they will feel I have to do it by myself. And that what can end up happening is that you just end up reinforcing the maladaptive behaviors in the first place. Um, I think the other risk is that when they, if, when, and if they do get to therapy, they do, tr they try to have perfect therapy and they try to do therapy perfectly. Don't you hopefully. love the like memes to see on like Twitter and stuff where it's just like, my therapist laughed at my joke today. <laughs> and you're like, I know these clients, I have them. And I probably have been that client. <laughs> I got a friend of mine, she was like, yeah, I had to stop seeing my therapist. It just, I just wanted her to like me and to be my friend. And I was like, yeah, that's, it's not gonna work. You're not gonna get anything out of that. Um, Hopefully, if and when you get to therapy, your therapist is alert to that kind of thing and they will be able to challenge you on it and you'll be able to see that your therapist's investment in your well-being isn't based on whether they like you or not. It's actually about their just interest in you and fundamentally as a person. Um, so I would probably start there. What are my beliefs about um, perfectionism and what it means to me and who can I get to help me? Because the other thing about perfectionism is how much is associated with independence, non-dependence, self-sufficiency. And so we can also think about perfection as a defense against dependence and needing or being seen as needy, being thought of as someone who has needs or overwhelming um, need for care. And so it's actually a very good challenge psychologically to ask for help. So I would do those two things. Um, this has been enlightening and so interesting and I think so helpful. And, you know, on a selfish level, this has been the episode I've wanted to send clients myself who this is, I'm like, this is an interesting part of you that you could be interesting <laughs> to explore, but that I'm not the person to do that with. So, but um, this has been, I think, a really interesting discussion to just discuss all these all the facets of what we perceive as perfectionism can you tell people about how to build a healthy brain your first book and how they can find you listen to stuff you've done mm. and just support your work in general um i had a friend message me the other day to say you're everywhere <laughs> so I don't as think you, you should be very far as you should be <laughs> um so mostly my instagram is probably the probably the hub to come and find me so that's i'm at food and psych um i do have a podcast it's it's on hiatus at the moment but it, hopefully we will be um cranking it up soon um i have a podcast that's currently going out on radio four called made of stronger stuff which i co-host with dr zander van tulliken who is you know, one of the twin doctors who do Operation Ouch, um, which is all about the science of health. Um, what else do I do? I write a lot of articles uh, in various places. Again, my social media would probably be the f best place to find me for that. And uh, How to Build a Healthy Brain. Yeah, I am very proud of it. It was selected by the NHS as a trusted source of health information. That's awesome. Thank you so much. So just they chose 10 books and mine was one of them. So congratulations. Um, thank That's you. Really, awesome. really delighted. So you can find that everywhere that you purchase books. And I read the audio book, which again, a friend of mine says, I just listened to it to go to bed. Your voice is so relaxing. You've got a therapist <laughs> voice. That's what it is. <laughs> um, and that's all about really the evidence-based lifestyle information to help you protect your brain health now. So improving things like depression, um, but also to future-proof your brain, reducing your risk of Alzheimer's disease and neurodegeneration. So that's um, out and available everywhere. <laughs> <laughs>
But that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please do let us know on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. And we do want to hear from you. We want your questions. We want to hear your train happy moments. And we'd love to feature you as Train Happy Trooper of the Week. So remember, you can get in touch with us via our WhatsApp. It is 07599927537. And whatever podcast platform you're choosing to listen to us on, please rate and review. It really helps the show and it really helps spread the train a happy message and that is it for this week i'll be back with a brand new episode for you next monday see you then ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.